Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks for checking out this week's message video. I hope that it encourages and inspires and challenges you. And I also hope that you have a group of people around you that you can talk through some of these things with. If you don't, we have Restore groups at our church that we would love for you to be involved in. You can get all of that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. We're also in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment that Jesus gave us to love God and to love people. So ultimately, I hope that this message helps you better love God and better love the world around you. Hope you enjoy it. So when I was a freshman in college, I went to a, a Christian school up in the northeast corner of the United States. Now, my experience at the school was not like the university, you know, American college experience that I had seen on TV or seen in movies or read about. It was a Christian school that was run more like a military school. And at this school, we had to go to chapel every week, not once, not twice, but three times. Now, if you skipped chapel, you were fined $25 for skipping chapel. So there's nothing like motivating the spiritual life of college students by threatening to take whatever little money they have left. And during chapel, they would come into our dorm rooms, and they would inspect our rooms, and if there was trash in the trash can or if our bed wasn't made, we were fined an additional $25. So cynicism in my heart had begun to rise because this was not the experience that I hoped for, and I had to basically go to church, go to chapel or I'd have to pay not to go. So cynicism had begun to rise, and in this moment in our story, it had really reached its peak in my life whenever our university decided for a change of pace in our chapel service to invite the power team. Has anyone heard of the power team before? I'm sorry if you have. Now, the power team were these guys that had spent their whole life since they were like toddlers uh, lifting weights, uh, eating raw eggs, and drinking protein shakes for Jesus. And they would travel the world, they travel the world, they travel the United States, and they perform these ridiculous feats of strength in front of their audience. And this was like a WWE wrestling event when they came to town. So they would like bend bars in their teeth, they would rip phone books in half, they would get like a frying pan and they would roll it up like a burrito all in the name of Jesus. And they would kind of like wrap Jesus in on the back end of whatever story or whatever, sorry, whatever uh, feat that they had just accomplished. So imagine this happening in the context where cynicism on a college campus is ripe. These guys show up, they perform this spectacle, and then they quote some Bible verses. So I remember myself sitting in this chapel service with thousands of other college students. I'm totally disengaged, and I think this is the, like the most lame thing I had ever seen or experienced. My arms are crossed, and I'm just kind of rolling my eyes at everything that these guys were doing. And they get to what they say is the grand finale, and there's this guy that's like the MC, and he's up there, and he's trying to get everybody on their feet for the grand finale. They bring out this six-foot-long, like, two-by-eight board. And there's one guy on each side of this board, and so it's spanning this gap of about six feet. And they tell us that Timmy, I don't think that's probably his name, but we'll call him Timmy. He sounds like a, a power team member. Timmy has never attempted this before, although I'm sure he had done it a hundred times before. But Timmy is going to run across the stage, and with his speed and with his strength, in the name of Jesus, because we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, he is going to bust through this board. You know, my interest was piqued just a little bit, but I'm still kind of kicked back. My arms are crossed. It's the big finale. And so everyone starts to cheer Timmy on, and the MC is like hyping up the crowd. Cheer Timmy on. Let's see if he can do this in the name of Jesus. Timmy runs as fast as he can, all 300 pounds of him, and he strikes this board across his chest, 
the board doesn't break, and Timmy is flat on his back on the stage. All of a sudden, I move from this to all of a sudden, I'm really engaged with what is going on in this chapel service. And something's wrong with Timmy. Timmy is not well. Timmy is laying on the ground. He's hobbled. He may have been knocked out. And so instead of like dismissing the service and saying, hey, you know, Timmy gave it his best shot. You guys have a great day at class. All these power team guys, they get around Timmy and they huddle over him and they say, get up, get up. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Satan never sleeps. Get up, Timmy. And all of a sudden the, the, the crowd of students begin to cheer too. Get up, Timmy. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. And I'm sitting there like, please, God, let Timmy do it again. <laughs> so Timmy stands up and he's like kind of hobbled and you can see something's not right with Timmy. And Timmy takes off across the stage again, strikes the board across his chest, flat on his back again. The board cracks a little bit but doesn't break, and you see these two guys look at each other, these two huge muscle guys holding the boards, and they kind of lean in on the board, and they, they finish the job, and they break the board, and kind of in a weak voice, they say, he did it. And that obviously leads me into my teaching today. What does it mean to love God with all of your strength? Now, if you've ever seen Zach and me side by side, if someone's going to be talking about strength, obviously I'm the guy uh, to do that. But we've been in this series called With Everything where we've been exploring what does it mean to love God with everything, with every facet of our life. And this series is rooted in two sections of Scripture. The first is in the ancient Hebrew text in a book called Deuteronomy where it says this. This is known in the Jewish culture as the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now fast forward centuries later, Jesus is on the scene. He is God with skin on. He is on earth. He's doing his work. He's doing his mission. And someone comes to him and says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds this way in the gospel account of the life of Jesus of Mark, where he says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So when Jesus answers this question, he is quoting back to the Shema, this ancient text that every Jew would have been familiar with in his culture, in his context today. So that's what we're going to be talking about. By the way, my name is John. I am uh, the campus pastor, or sorry, the community pastor here at Restore, and I'm super excited to dig into God's word with you today. So when Jesus is quoting back to the Shema, this word strength that's interpreted in our Bibles, or maybe it's interpreted as the word might in, your, in yours, is the Hebrew word meod. Can you say meod? There you go. Good job. Meod. It's only translated as strength two times in the Hebrew scriptures, but this word appears 287 times in the ancient Hebrew text. And only two times is it translated as strength. It's translated as strength in our modern English translations in Deuteronomy 6. And then one more time later in, uh, I think, the book of 2 Kings, where they're quoting back to this text. So 287 times, only two is strength. It's, uh, it's interpreted as very, the word very, thir- 139 times. It's greatly, 62 times, and it's translated as exceedingly 23 times. 
So the vast majority of times that this is used in the scripture and interpreted is um, very greatly or exceedingly. So when you look at this text within that context, what it helps us to understand is that here, this word mayo, the one that's translated as strength or might, is actually kind of modifying, qualifying, or enhancing heart and soul, and then later what Jesus would add in with the word mind. So when we think about this idea of strength, or we think about this word strength kind of in our Christian Western culture, we often think that strength is about being able to do more. It's about taking on more responsibility. Strength is about maximizing or maxing out our uh, calendars. Strength for some is seen as the ability to cultivate more and more relationships. Strength is about never slowing down, about living life at an incredibly frenetic place or pace. When we talk about someone who is a strong person, we typically think of them in these terms, that someone who is able to juggle or manage all of this, doing more, having more responsibility, having a maxed out calendar, living in relationship with many, many people, never slowing down. That's what we often think of when we think of someone who is strong, or that's what our culture tells us that a strong person is. But my proposition for you today is that this Western idea or concept of what it means to be strong is actually antithetical to the life and the teachings of Jesus. It's antithetical to what the scripture actually teaches that a strong person is. And I want to say that in our cultural moment, maybe strength is about something else. Maybe strength is actually opposite of what our cultural norms tell us. So you guys ready to go? We're going to be in a lot of text today. We're going to cover a lot of scriptural ground. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have it on your device, no problem. The text will be on the screen behind me. But we're going to begin in the book of Luke. Luke is a gospel account of the story of Jesus' life. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verse 40. Uh, We're going to be focusing in for just a minute on verse 42, but we need to read 40 and 41 to really understand the context of what's going on here. So, Luke, the force is strong with you. Luke, verse 40, chapter 4. It says, At sunset, the people brought to him all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. So this says, at the end of the day, this is actually at the end of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was over for the Jews. The end of the day had come. The sun was setting, so people could kind of get back to their normal rhythms of life. And then all of these people were coming with various sicknesses, and it says that he was healing them. So this happens at sunset. We don't know if Jesus was up all night. We don't know really what happened over the next few hours, but it says that one after another, after sunset, Jesus begins to heal people. In verse 42, it says this, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. So we see this Jesus going out to a solitary place throughout the accounts of his life as a, as a rhythm that he had incorporated in his schedule to seek silence and solitude with his father. So he went out to a solitary place, but the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. 
But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. The kingdom of God was kind of the, the crash intersect of heaven and earth. It was life as God knows it. He says, I must tell this good news to other towns also, not just yours, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So what's he doing? People are coming to him one by one, and it says he's healing them. He's like, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. It's like an episode of Oprah, you're healed. And he's casting out demons. He's performing exorcism one after another, maybe all night long, and they're coming to him, and they're begging him to stay with us. Please don't leave us. Stay with us. And you have to imagine and understand in this culture, this was a communal culture, so you know that the word got out to the surrounding villages saying that there is this rabbi that's in our village, and he's been with us all night long and he's healing people he's casting out demons bring your sick bring the needy bring everyone that has a need to meet this man and so the word is spreading like wildfire and all of these outside villages are bringing their people in and they're begging Jesus to stay with us but Jesus says no I've got to go it's been good I've enjoyed my time with you it's been real but I'm out of here so Jesus is faced with these real pressing, urgent, good things, I would argue great things that he could be doing and people begging him to stay. People who are wanting his time, but Jesus says, no, I've got to go. And you have to imagine that unless Jesus walked backwards from this village where he was all the way to the next village saying bye-bye, 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 he had to, in a moment, turn his back on those real, urgent pressing needs, those cries for him to stay, he had to say, no, I have to keep on going. And maybe a little nugget for us today is that you don't have to do it all. You don't have to do it all. I don't have to do it all. Jesus in the story doesn't do it all. He doesn't stay. He doesn't heal everyone. He doesn't cast out every demon. He is faced with these pressing needs, and he leaves. How could he do that, is the question. How could he face this, look at these people and their cries in the face, and walk away? So Luke chapter 9, verse 51, kind of gives us some context to understand what's going on in the mind and the heart of Jesus. And we can explore some different uh, dimensions of this in his life, And he kind of examined and explored the rhythms of how he lived and how he served. And as we do this, I think that there's a pattern that's going to emerge to help us understand how Jesus could look this in the face and leave. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As we read through these texts, see if you sense a pattern emerging. It says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Flip right in your Bible, four chapters, to Luke chapter 13, verse 22. There are these little details that we miss until we begin to link them together, and these greater details begin to emerge as we explore the text. It says, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Let's keep moving. Chapter 17, verse 11. This one goes to 11. Now, on his way to where? Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now notice this in chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to, let's say it all together, Jerusalem, 
And everything that was written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Let's read one more. I think there's something that the author of this account of the life of Jesus wants us to see. Something is beginning to emerge, hopefully. It's like from the school of redundancy school. Chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. Again and again, kind of like a beat that plays over and over. This going to Jerusalem is placed in the narrative. We see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus did this as he was going to Jerusalem. Jesus healed this person on his way to Jerusalem. As Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he said this. Gives us the sense that there's something driving Jesus, namely his desire to get to Jerusalem. And as you read the book of Luke, you see that Jesus oriented his entire life, his entire ministry and mission around this mission to get to Jerusalem. Everything that he faced, he ran through this filter of does this help me get to Jerusalem or does this prevent me from getting to Jerusalem? So what he says yes to and what he says no to is dictated by this larger goal of getting to Jerusalem. Now, you'll note that this doesn't keep Jesus from being compassionate compassionate, uh, generous, or spontaneous. You can see in Luke chapter 8 where he stops on his way to Jerusalem and he responds to a need. But after he responds, after he cares, after he heals, he is back on his mission to get to Jerusalem. And these dimensions of Jesus' life are fascinating. So we've kind of explored and looked at this missional, this mission dimension of Jesus' life. Now I want to look at the relational dimension of Jesus' life. So flip two books to the left. Uh, the, the book of Matthew is another account of the life of Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And there's this odd thing that happens in Jesus' life where he's with a couple of friends of his. And as we kind of frame it in the larger context of this story, I want to ask some questions this morning. So Luke, or sorry, Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. Uh, This is kind of like the first instance of a Christian building program. You know, when in doubt, build something. He says, I'll build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So it says that Jesus took kind of three of his buddies up this mountain and there's this kind of wild moment where all of a sudden Moses and Elijah are there before them and everything's kind of bright and shiny. And then in verse 9 it says this, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So they have this supernatural experience on this mountain, Moses and Elijah, and then the story as it unfolds further in the text, Jesus begins to walk down the mountain with these three individuals, and he begins to ask them questions, and they give him answers, and they begin to ask him questions, and he responds to them. They have this kind of teacher-student, rabbi-apprentice relationship, and they have this back-and-forth conversation. So why is this important? In Luke chapter 10, after um, this moment, In Luke's account, he says this, chapter 10, verse 1, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him. But then Matthew 11, verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, 
But then Acts chapter 1, verse 15, after the ascension when Jesus has gone to heaven, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. 120 people are at the core, kind of the birth and the genesis of the early church. These numbers are important. We see these kind of circles here in the life of Jesus. You've got this outer circle of about 120 people, and then within that you've got 72 that Jesus appointed and sent out two by two. And then inside of that, you've got this inner circle of 12. And then according to Matthew 17, you've got this inner, inner, inner circle of how many? Three. So notice, Jesus doesn't take 120 up the mountain. Jesus takes three. He has these different levels of relationship. He can't take 120 or he can't take 72 people up the mountain and personally interact with them as he could the, t- the three. So he takes the three. And he has this transformative moment with three people that would ultimately go on to change the world and are the reasons that we are here today. He takes three up the mountain, which means that he leaves nine other disciples behind. So maybe an application for us today and an observation for us to make is that Jesus seems to go deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. Jesus seems to go deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer It leaves us with a question of how many deep, vulnerable, transformative relationships can we truly handle? 120? 72? I would argue that even 12 is difficult. Maybe for us, in the greater scope of this series, to love God with everything means means that you have the strength to say no to some so that you can say yes to fewer but deeper transformative relations, relationships. To love God with everything means that we have the strength to say no to some so that we can say yes to fewer but more important and life-changing relationships. And that what, that's what it means for us to love God and to love others. So Jesus has his three, these three core people that have this primary connection with him. He's got 12 that are fairly close, but not as close as the three. He's not taking 72 people up the mountain. So Jesus goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. And I would say that in, in, our, in our cultural moment, in our Western experience today, the reality is that most go shallower and shallower with more and more and more. And so what happens is we find ourselves relationally thin And when we're faced with a moment of crisis, those people, those relationships that we've spread out and we've become shallower and shallower with more and more and more, when those moments of crisis hit, what we discover is those two or three, our Peter, James, and John, will emerge in our life. So Jesus is not only on mission to Jerusalem, but he can only handle a few tight, close relationships as he goes. And note that there's no text where he's apologizing to the nine because of the three, or to the 72 because of the 12, or to the 120 because of the 72. He says, no, I can only take three up the mountain. And Jesus lives with this kind of countercultural sense of focus and balance. Let's push this idea a little bit further. Let's go to the book of John, another account of Jesus' life, chapter 4, verse 4. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. And I'll stop right there. Uh, In that time... 
in that moment, Jews did not travel through Samaria. So this in and of itself was really, really unique. And Zach's done some incredible teachings around this that I won't get into. But just notice that he's in a place where he shouldn't be. It says he's going through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Jesus, the Son of God, gets tired, and he sits down, and he rests. And then the story goes on. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then notice this next portion of Scripture. It's really stunning when you think about it. It's in parentheses in my Bible. My Bible. Maybe it's in parentheses as yours. But listen to this. Chapter, or verse 8 is stunning. It says, His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is tired. He's been traveling with his disciples. These disciples that have made the exact same journey as him. Jesus is tired. says that he sits down. And they keep going into town to get food. You have to wonder, as the disciples went on, they're thinking, man, this Son of God guy, he's like not carrying his weight around here. I mean, he can cast out demons, but he can't get a sandwich. What's up with this dude? But it says that Jesus sat down. And is Jesus worried that the disciples are going to judge him for stopping and resting as they go into town? No. Because the key thing for us to see here is that Jesus, the Son of God, who came to serve, had no problem being served. He came to serve. That was his mission as he was on his way to Jerusalem. But in this moment, in a tired state, it says he had no problem being served. No problem appearing weak and exhausted. No problem publicly saying, whew, I am cooked from that journey. So Jesus is on this mission to Jerusalem this mission that helps him determine what to say yes to and what to say no to. Relationally, Jesus is tight with a very few disciples, three. And physically, Jesus gets tired, and he says it, and he rests. Now in John chapter 5, 1 chapter 4, verse 19, this is a moment where theologically Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain uh, one of many occasions to kind of give us an insight into this filter, this incredible focus that he had in his life. What allowed him to say yes and no to certain things? What drove him on that mission to Jerusalem? What allowed him to stay engaged closely with those three people and not so closely with other people? What allowed him to admit that he was tired and that he needed to rest and to sit down at the well. John chapter 5, verse 19 says this, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus is saying here that he is so connected with God. This is this idea of connection with God in the Shema that we read earlier, the hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. It's the Hebrew word ahad, that he is so connected with God. He has such ahad with the Father that what the Father does, so he does. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And this is the thing that gave him this divine sense of mission that guided him in his life and in relation to, relationships. 
This is the thing that he stays true to. Whatever the Father does, the Son does like, likewise. Whatever the Father gives me to do, those are the things that I do. I do that and not this. I say yes to this. I say no to this. Because this is my mission. Because Jesus understand, understood this truth that I think God wants us to understand this morning, and it's this. The Father is not going to hold Jesus accountable for not doing the things that he didn't ask him to do. The Father doesn't hold us accountable for doing things or not doing things that he didn't call us to do. He said, I will only hold you accountable for that, the things that I have given you to do, the things that I do, only things that guide him toward that mission of getting to Jerusalem. But I understand that this is easier said than done in our culture, because it kind of grows against the grain of our modern wiring and against modern culture. So the question for us today is kind of, what would it be like to live with such a vibrant connection with God that we have this unshakable mission, that we can develop a filter in our life of what we say yes to, what we say no to, what emails we answer, what emails we don't, what things we put on our calendar, what things we exclude from our calendar, the people that we're going to invest in and those that, unfortunately, we, we may have to say no to. What would it look like to have this kind of profound clarity, this sense of clarity, to live this focused, this in tune, to have that kind of a hod that Jesus had with the Father? And I think the answer to this question might be what it means to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with our, all of our mind, very much or exceedingly, as the text says. So I want to explore this practically as we close out here. A 19th century Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, said this. He said, when it comes to the great saints, the people that have uh, affected great change in the world for the name and the mission of Jesus, he said, purity of heart, the thing that defined them is their purity of heart and their ability to will the one thing. Purity of heart is to will the one thing. Uh, modern author Richard, War, uh, Richard uh, sorry, Ronald Rollheiser uh, kind of teased this idea out in one of his books. He took this idea, purity of heart is to will the one thing, from Kierkegaard, and he focused in on the life of Mother Teresa. And he said the reason that Mother Teresa and her story stirs us so much is because she had the ability to will the one thing. Because of her connection with the Father, that ahad, that sense of connection that she had with Father, the Father, she could will the one thing, and that was to serve the poor in her world. And that's why we're so stirred by her, our story, because of her discipline to will the one thing. Um, in ancient Platonic thought, and you also see it in some of Paul's writings in the New Testament, he talks a lot about this God-given energy. In the ancient Greek world, they talked about this spiritual energy that we all have. He said, in a sense, it's this thing that we wake up, this God-given thing that we wake up with, this energy every single day. And purity of heart is the ability to take that energy that we have and focus it on one thing. But in our modern world, we have unlimited options where we can take and where we can place that energy. And if we don't will the one thing, whatever that one thing, whatever that mission in our life is, what happens is that energy, that spiritual energy that God has given us gets fractured and it gets split and it begins to grow weaker and weaker and weaker as we send it to more and more, more directions. This is why James wrote in James chapter 1 verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable 
in, an, in all his ways. The key for us today is that those who make change, those who impact the world, have the ability to will the one thing. They are single-minded, not double-minded. They have their Jerusalem, and they understand that, and they are guided by that mission. So it's a discipline that we have to develop to harness that spiritual energy and direct it toward that one thing, that one mission in our life, that small group of people. The discipline to take it, to focus our energies on that one thing, but it's also a discipline to learn the ability to say no. It's the art of renunciation. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser, who I mentioned a minute ago, in this book where he was talking about Mother Teresa, he said this, Every choice is a renunciation. Indeed, every choice is a thousand renunciations. To choose one thing is to turn, one, one, to turn one's back on many others. Every choice is a renunciation. So if we choose to marry this person, we're choosing not to marry these people. If we choose to live in this city, it means we're not living in these other cities. If we choose to give our time and energy to this thing, it means that we're not putting our time and energy toward these other things. If we choose to use our money for this, it means we're choosing not to use our money for that. And Rollheiser goes on to say this, but becoming a saint has a real cost. Hard choice, commitment, single-mindedness, willing the one thing, renouncing whatever stands in the way. So what we see with Jesus in his story is that he was faced with these people who were in need. These great opportunities that he had to say no to because he was going to Jerusalem. Jesus could only take three up the mountain. And Jesus grew tired and he sat down at the well. So for us to be like Jesus is to have the strength to say no to many good things. The ability to say, that looks good, it sounds good, but I have to say no to that so that you can say yes to one or two really great life-changing things or people. And the simple question for us today is this. Does the risen Christ give you the strength and permission today to not do it all? Is that what the scripture teaches? Does the story of Jesus, does his life illustrate the ability or the, the truth that we don't have to do it all? I think the answer is yes. This kind of takes me back to a, a story um, many years ago, a couple decades ago, my family went on a skiing trip to Colorado, and as we were driving back from Colorado, we got trapped in this snowstorm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and so we had to kind of camp out for the night. And it was right at the time that Castaway came out. And so everyone was in this kind of blizzard area, and this night everybody decided to go see Castaway. So we're standing in this line uh, waiting to go into the movie. This is before you could, like, reserve seats. You had to buy a physical ticket and get in line, and it was kind of first come, first serve. And we've been waiting for, like, 20 hours, I think, for this movie. And I never exaggerate, so it was definitely 20 hours. And um, I was there with my sister and my brother-in-law and my mom and dad and other sister, and we were just waiting in there forever, it seemed like. And then right as the movie, but the doors are about to open so we could go find our seat, these guys kind of materialize out of thin air and they cut right in front of us in line. Now my brother-in-law, he is like the real-life Chandler Bing. But he's like the real-life Chandler Bing if Chandler Bing had the body of an NFL linebacker. Okay? So he's got that dry, sarcastic sense of humor, but he's like 6'2", 240 pounds, big, intimidating guy. And so they cut right in front of my brother-in-law, and they're much smaller than my brother-in-law. And I'll never forget this moment because he's standing there. We've been waiting forever. These guys materialize. They cut in front of him, and 
he leans over them and kind of in his Chandler Bing way, taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? These guys are terrified. They're not turning around. He's just like, what are you doing? It was super funny. We don't even know why, but it was just really funny. What are you doing? What are you doing? And I wonder, as we race from one thing to the next, as we're at a stoplight and we get 30 seconds to check our voicemail or to respond to an email or to add something to our calendar, I wonder if Jesus isn't sitting there next to us tapping us saying, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing to keep someone else happy at the expense of your family? What event are you going to add to your calendar this week that means that you can't spend a night hanging out with your family and your children just to please someone else? Jesus is saying, hey, what are you doing? Maybe what are you doing when you're going in a million different directions and you have no Jerusalem in your life? You're double-minded. You're living a directionless life. And Jesus is tapping us on the shoulder saying, hey, what are we doing? And the question for us is this. Are we going into the village to get food like the disciples, although we're barely hanging on physically, spiritually, and emotionally, because we don't want the other disciples to think that we're weak. So we keep going when we actually need to stop and we need to sit down at the well. Notice this, that when Jesus stops at the well, when Jesus embraces his weakness, when he says no to going into the town with the disciples, And he sits down and he says, I'm tired. We have one of the most powerful encounters in all of the scripture. And we hear this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But notice what we don't hear. We don't hear what happened to the disciples when they went into the town to get food. The same disciples who had made that same journey that were probably just as tired as Jesus. But in vulnerability, we see transformation because Jesus is willing to sit down at the well. He embraces his limits. He recognizes that he's weak and rests. And I think it's in those moments when we're willing to do the same thing that God says, I'll do my greatest work. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. When I say no to this and stay focused on the mission that God has in front of me, then I am strong. When I embrace the three and have to say no to the nine, then I am strong. When I recognize that I'm tired and I embrace my limits and I sit down, then I am strong. The question is this, is is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? So maybe... Loving God with everything, with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength, very much exceedingly, means having the strength to say no to distractions, some which are good, some which are bad, and that will distract us from our mission. It means having the strength to invest in fewer but deeper relationships. It means having the strength to embrace our limits, to slow down, to sit, and to rest. And I think what we'll find, if we can live like Jesus, it's often in those moments that God does his most beautiful work and that God writes the most powerful chapter in your story. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story that thousands of years later still challenges us, still corrects us, but still gives us hope. God, we thank you for the example of your son, Jesus, that shows us what it means to live with a true connection to you. And in doing so, what that means for us and how we can experience hope and we can experience restoration and how we can speak hope and restoration into the lives of other people around us. God, I pray today that as we leave that we'll think about how this story intersects our own story. (laughs) The things that we need to say no to so that we can be focused on the things that you put before us to do. Those hard moments in life where we have to draw a line and say, hey, this is... This isn't what God has for me, and I need to stay focused on this. The relationships that we need to invest in, maybe ones that we've neglected for a long time, maybe they're family, maybe they're friends. God, I pray that you would draw our hearts back to what really matters. God, and I pray that as we live this way, that you would write that beautiful chapter of our story because, God, we're being faithful to you. In your name we pray, amen.